Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. You may not know that Connecticut actually used to own a sizable chunk of the Buckeye State of Ohio. Okay, it was back in the 16 and 1700s, but today there are still names of towns in Ohio that are the same names as in Connecticut because they were settled by people from Connecticut 300 years ago. Well, here to tell us that story is Alex Dubois. He's the curator of collections at the Litchfield Historical Society. He's been studying this because it turns out that a number of former Litchfield County residents played a central role in what was known back then as the Western Reserve. And he'll be along in just a second. This week's trivia question. Who was Zadok Benedict? And what significant industry did he start in Connecticut back in the late 1700s? We'll have the answer for you right after the program. And now, when Cleveland used to belong to Connecticut. It used to be called New Connecticut, and then simply the Western Reserve. We're talking about 3 million acres of land in present-day Ohio that used to be owned by the state of Connecticut, including the city of Cleveland. So how is this even possible Well, to understand it, you got to turn back the clock all the way to the 1600s when it all began. But before we do that, first, I want to create a mental image of a map so you can follow along. Now, think of the state of Connecticut. And if you know it well, you know, it's like a rectangle. It's got the four sides and its western edge or the left side of the rectangle forms the border between Connecticut and New York State. Well, for a second, let's just pretend that that border didn't exist and all you had were the top and the bottom lines, the north and the south, and they just kept going to the left, toward the west, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Imagine that. Well, back in 1662, that's exactly how it was. Connecticut had an official charter from the King of England that said, your land goes all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. Well, of course, over the years, everything's changed, and Ohio's its own state, and all the other states that are out there, too, are their own. Well, because it was settled, though, by Connecticut residents, Ohio has a lot of town names that came from Connecticut. And, of course, the land wasn't really the white settlers to settle. It was inhabited by Native Americans, and how they were summarily removed is one of the darker sides of the tale. Alex Dubois has studied the situation carefully. He is the curator of collections at the Litchfield Historical Society. First of all, would you say that that's pretty much what we were dealing with is is what King Charles II had given to Connecticut settlers? They knew that there was a body of water to the west of the colonies. They just didn't know how much land there was between the colonies and that body of water. So when he said you can have all the land to the South Sea or the Pacific Ocean, they really did not understand just how much land that involved. And if Connecticut's Western land claims were still held today, you know, cities such as Albany, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, Omaha, Salt Lake City, would all be located in Connecticut, which is a pretty fascinating idea to think about. (laughs) It would make uh, going on vacation a whole different story. (laughs) Yeah. Even though Connecticut is claiming this land, when you start thinking realistically, there's no way that the state of Connecticut or other states that had these really big land claims could ever hope to govern a state that is that wide. So in the years after the revolution, it becomes pretty clear that the states are going to have to cede some of this land to the federal government in order to create a, you know, a more perfect balanced union of the new nation. But states like Connecticut, also Virginia, decide to keep certain aspects, certain parts of their Western land claims 
and in the case of Connecticut, the land that they claim is called the Connecticut Western Reserve. And it's situated in the northeast corner of present-day Ohio, south of Lake Erie, along the Pennsylvania border. And I always found this name, you know, Western Reserve, to be making no sense until I read some of your notes where you said that they reserved some of that land that they initially had out to the Pacific Ocean. Is that where that name comes from? Yeah, it's, it's quite a literal name. It's a piece of land west of Connecticut that the state reserved for its continued use even after it ceded the rest of its land claims to the government. It's not just a piece of land, as some people may be thinking of it. This is 3.3 million acres. It's 120 miles wide, and it covered today 15 counties of Ohio, including Cleveland, Youngstown, and you know some of those famous names of Ohio. And so here it is. It's now after the Revolutionary War. We're talking 1786. Connecticut gives the land, except for this Western Reserve, back to the federal government. There was another complicating factor, which happened in 1792, which was six years after Connecticut reserved these lands. It decided to set aside some land, basically two of the 15 counties of today's counties, Erie County and Huron County, as compensation for those who had their land destroyed but during British raids in the Revolutionary War. Yeah, so the, the sufferer's land, the idea was that in compensation for property or homes that were destroyed by the British during the war, residents in those towns could go west if they wanted to. They could you know, form, you know, get their land, create a new home, live their lives out there. And actually, if you look at a map of those two counties, you'll see a lot of town names that are the same as names along Connecticut's coast. But what we've seen is that there's relatively little actual migration from people in those towns to the lanes that could, they could claim. And what actually happens is a lot of times they're selling their deeds, their claims to investors, to other settlers who are also you know, involved in the Western Reserve and in Ohio as just a way to make back some money and decide not to actually move their whole lives to Ohio. So now three years after Connecticut does this, they set aside 500,000 acres for the sufferer's land, as you say, but they still had the rest of this land, and they decide to raise some money for public education, and they decide they're going to sell this land to something called the Connecticut Land Company. How did that all come about? They say, with the rest of the land that we've claimed, rather than try to promote settlement and govern this land ourselves, we're just going to sell it to private investors. So they take bids, and the winning bid is from the Connecticut Land Company, which is a group of 35 investor groups representing about 57 individuals. And these names, if you know about Connecticut history, are going to be some of the most prominent business owners, politicians, lawyers, judges. The really important names in Connecticut history are part of this investment group. And they pay $1.2 million in that time period. And for an estimate, they estimated 3 million acres of land in the reserve. This purchase is made on credit. So they don't have all that money up front. They purchase it on credit. They lay out terms for how they're going to repay it and what the interest will be. But importantly, as you said, for the people of Connecticut, the state decides that these proceeds are going to be set aside to support public education. So they actually form something called the Connecticut School Fund. They put that money in there. And then from that fund, they support public education efforts in Connecticut. So the company now owns the land. They divide it up on a lottery system to all the different investors based on how much money they put forth. The problem is that the majority of people buying these are speculators. So they're businessmen who think that they can make a profit in Ohio with this land. Effectively, they just want to resell their shares of land for profit and pocket the difference. Some of the investors 
actually visit the reserve, but a lot of them never stepped foot in Ohio. Even fewer of them had any intention of actually settling in these lands themselves. Some of them actually take an active role in attracting desirable settlers. So some of them want to get family units out there. They want to get certain tradespeople out there. They want to really make a successful township. But some of them just want to sell the land as quickly as possible. And unfortunately for the company, they're really woefully unorganized in, in terms of how it came to promoting sales. They don't do it in any concerted or collective way. Many investors are circulating their own advertisements in New England and other areas in the East, and they're relying on land agents or lawyers in Ohio to actually oversee sales, collect rents, payments, and make sure that things are going well. Because they used a lottery system to divide up the land, investors received lots in all different areas of the Western Reserve, so they weren't always grouped together in a way that would make a lot of sense. So people who are buying land in the reserve can buy land in multiple different places, not all of them near established townships or near other settlers. So this really creates a more sporadic and often isolated settlement pattern in the reserve. What would drive somebody who's you know well set up in Connecticut to go out to some place out west? What what's the draw? What why would we do this? And wouldn't we be a little concerned as to what we're getting into? Yeah, well, definitely on that second question, we generally break it up into push factors, which are things that are happening in Connecticut that might make a resident look elsewhere, and pull factors, which are conditions specific to Ohio, the reserve, that are bringing them there. And in Connecticut, the big one that we talk about is just the fact that there's not enough available land here. So as the population grows, the amount of land is stagnant, you know, it's not getting any bigger, and as more people buy land, there's just less of it available. There's also less resources, and the big one we see is timber, actually. So timber for fuel, for building, and this seems odd to us now because now we're trying to reforest Connecticut, but at that time there just wasn't enough wasn't enough trees. They were all being cut down and used for different purposes. It's also right at the time that this is happening, there's some factors in environmental change. There's colder temperatures than normal. There's a vol- even a volcanic eruption that affects weather patterns, and all this means that um, agricultural yields here in Connecticut are limited, and people might think, maybe I'll go somewhere else and try that. And they see Ohio as sort of untouched land with with soil. That would be really good for farming. And then there's also other factors. There's political pressure. So Connecticut is, is at this time period, dominated by the Federalist Party. So if you were an anti-Federalist in Connecticut, you might look elsewhere to sort of start your life again. And then in terms of what's bringing people to Ohio, obviously there's a large availability of affordable land. There's the promise of agricultural potential, and one thing that's important to keep in mind with this story is that what potential settlers are being told about Ohio isn't always the truth. So the people who are trying to sell land are obviously going to present it one way, and there's sort of this expectation versus the reality of the settler experience. There's also employment opportunities in the reserve, and this is a a place where because there's so few people living there, so few skilled laborers, that someone who could be a, a furniture maker or a joiner in Connecticut could move to Ohio and suddenly become an architect builder and really be in charge of creating a whole town. And there's also in Ohio, there's a lack of those old New England institutions. The church is not established there. So if you're someone who doesn't want to be, you know, involved in those old New England institutions, this is a place that has much more freedom. Now, let's take a step back and talk about what I think is a fascinating wrinkle in this story. The Connecticut Land Company, after it's formed, and it wants to you know, survey the land, decides to go to Canterbury, Connecticut, to a lawyer there and hire him, a guy named Moses Cleveland. 
Cleveland gets together 50 people, including six surveyors, and heads out to Ohio, and he's the founder of Cleveland, Ohio. And I think this is a fascinating story. What can you tell me about Moses Cleveland? Yeah, so surveying was really the first thing that the Connecticut Land Company had to do because um, they bought a bunch of land. They didn't know what was there. They needed to organize it, divide it up, get it into a, a state where they could actually sell it. So Cleveland leaves leads this band of surveyors to the Western Reserve, and one of the first places they come upon is what would become the town of Cleveland. Interesting story about Cleveland is that Cleveland's name is spelled differently than how we spell Cleveland today. They dropped the extra A. We don't know why, but at some point they dropped the extra A, and that's what Cleveland is today. Cleveland's out there. The surveyors are walking the whole reserve, and what they're doing is laying it out into townships of a standardized size. They're marking boundaries. They're recording the quality of the land, which is a really important factor. And they're actually looking specifically at what kind of timber's there, water resources, the quality of the soil, how good it would be for farming. And a lot of the land that they're finding sometimes is swampy or, they say, unsuitable for farming. It can be sold at different prices and more easily exchanged. And the important thing that Cleveland and these surveyors did was they created a map of the reserves so that someone in Connecticut or Massachusetts could look at a, the map and actually locate the piece of land they wanted to buy. So even if they've never set foot in Ohio, at least they have some idea where it is, what's around it, and you know how they might get there. That how they might get there part is something I want to focus on for a second because in Reading on how Moses Cleveland and his team got there, some went by land with horse and cattle, and others went in boats and actually did a seven-mile portage of their canoes and boats around Niagara Falls. I can't imagine what it would have been like in those days to move everything you've got across such rugged land to a new location. Just a mind-boggling thought. Even if they bought land, they still need to get there. They need to bring all their supplies. We've generally seen two routes that people take, as you described. So one is south going through Pennsylvania and up into the reserve, and then one goes through upstate New York, hugs the shoreline and goes to Cleveland, or actually goes over water and then down the rivers, as you said. If you're traveling single traveler, it might be about a month for you to do this. If you're bringing uh, you know, luggage and a family or a larger group of people, it might take up to two months. They also might bring possessions separately, so they might bring the family out and then have the possessions brought on later. There's weather, there's natural disasters, there's danger. There's just a lot of factors that make this not an enjoyable trip, and not everybody makes it alive. So now you've got this settlement pattern coming out to Ohio, but you have Native Americans who are living on that land. It was kind of an audacious belief that we could just roll in there and and take over this land. How did this all go down? Yeah, so when we talk about the Western Reserve story, we generally tell people that it's actually a story about resettlement, not settlement, because just saying settlement makes us think like this this is land that is unsettled, open, and people just sort of come in and set up their houses and there's no problem. So while Connecticut and other states are arguing over their rightful claims to Western lands, they're not giving a whole lot of thought to the fact that these lands have long been settled, used, and owned by Native people. So Ohio was home to several tribal groups. By the time period we're talking about, much of this population is actually made up of tribes who have already migrated to this area in previous times, often as a result of earlier conflicts or forced relocation as settlement happened in the north and the east. So in the reserve, as in all cases of westward expansion, we're, we're really talking about white migrants coming in at the expense of native populations. And it's a process that is slow but very intentional in terms of their removal. 
So through a pattern of conflicts, treaties, and unfair purchases in which the federal government, private investors like the Connecticut Land Company, can buy Native land for pennies on the dollar, we're seeing Native peoples moved farther west. Not all those present had the right to give away such a large amount of land, and even once the treaties agreed, white migrants continued to settle into what is legally Native land almost immediately. One of the things that's actually slowing down settlement or holding it up is that people are afraid of how safe it is to live in Ohio. They know that there's been armed conflicts with Native populations. They know that there are still Native populations living there. This is also an area that was claimed by Connecticut, sold to private investors, and they're not sure you know, what entity is actually going to govern them or who will protect them should there be further conflicts. So there are people today who are living in Ohio whose ancestors came from, say, Litchfield County or Suffield, Connecticut, where a lot of the Connecticut Land Company officers came from. Is this true? We found here at the Society that we get people visiting us to use our resources to look in our archives who are from Ohio, but they trace their family back to Litchfield, Goshen, and towns around here. Um, So the connections that tie Ohio and the Western Reserve in particular to New England and Connecticut are still strong. They're still there. So have you ever been to either Cleveland or, let's say, Danbury, Ohio? Yeah, so I actually did a trip in November. I went to Cleveland, Hudson, Warren. I stopped in Talmadge. So I visited some of those cities that have place names that are named after, our, you know, the people we had here in Connecticut. You feel almost like you're in New England when you're out there. When you talk about westward expansion, it seems like they generally go well past Ohio, and that's sort of they think of it, you know, the frontier is farther out. And this is really where it all started. I mean, this is where everything was sort of tested, and this is the proving ground for how we admit states to the Union and how we divide up land. It was all happening in Ohio. The really important chapter in westward expansion, and one that just so happens to have a really strong connection to, to the Connecticut. up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank Alex Dubois, the curator of collections at the Litchfield Historical Society. He's an expert on the Western Reserve, the millions of acres that Connecticut used to own in Ohio back in the 16 and 1700s. Next week on Amazing Tales, we're going to go from the land to the sea. We're going to venture to Mystic Seaport to explore Connecticut's history in the whaling industry. Now, for this week's trivia question, the question was, who was Zadok Benedict and what significant industry did he start in Connecticut in the late 1700s? Well, Zadok is credited with starting the very first hat shop in Danbury. It was just seven feet by nine feet and it cranked out only three hats a day. But by the mid-1800s, Danbury would have more hat factories than any other town in the country and it would be known as the hat capital. Well, if you like the show, tell your family, friends, and colleagues about it, and make sure they follow it. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe, and please stay healthy. (laughs) 